Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Hi, everyone. Aw, hi, guys. Um, I just I want to say that it's just really lovely. Like, I do get nervous um, before I speak, and I scramble at the last minute. My husband was actually, like, at 3.45, like, kind of yelling at me to leave the house. <laughs> Um, and I was still needing him to print off what I was working on at that point. Um, but I feel like the reason I can kind of do that is because I get to come and share with a community of people who love me, and there's something really safe about that, and I just want to say thank you guys for that. And I'm not saying everyone will necessarily agree with everything I bring when I get the microphone, but I, that's fine. Um, I might not even agree with myself. <laughs> Um, if I had to listen to a recording. But I feel like there's just a really beautiful safety here, and I really appreciate that. Um, I was going to say, my Mother's, mother's Day morning, um, I had one child I won't name who, who bought me a really lovely pair of pink fluffy socks that are super soft from the Mother's Day stall. And then when I opened them, that child said, can I hold those? And then he's like, I mean, they are like <laughs> rubbing them on their face. And then they said, can I give you $4 for these? <laughs> I said no. Um, oh, all right, so last week, um, Caro introduced us to this story. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Nick. You thought that was funny. Um, yeah, Carol introduced us to the story from John chapter 4. How many of us were here or, or listened to the recording of that? This, I can, yeah, okay, so enough of us. Okay, cool. Um, so this is the story about the Samaritan woman at the well. So those of us who grew up in church, uh, which is not all of us by any means, and I don't want to assume that, but those of us who did grow up in church would be fairly familiar with this story. Um, and Caro, Caro talked about this from the perspective of the early church fathers. And spoiler alert, in case you haven't listened, um, this story is about a promise of fidelity or a promise of faithfulness. Um, the faithfulness of God replacing the faithlessness of those who are meant to care for you, whether that was husbands or other gods. And yeah, it was beautiful. I had never heard that um, interpretation before, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so today we're going to spin this passage in another direction, or we're going to put on another set of glasses when we're looking at this same scripture. Um, and we're going to see if we can learn some new things together. Um, so I was asked by Carol, this is her fault, <laughs> just saying, um, to read this passage from a feminist perspective. Did anyone gasp when I said that, feminist? Okay. So I grew up in a, in a fairly conservative uh, community in terms of my Christian faith. Um, technically, the denomination that I was a part of, my dad was a pastor, American Baptist. Technically, women were allowed to be ordained to preach, but I never actually heard any women preach. Um, 
And I remember arriving at my university, which was a Christian university, to study um, ministry and theology and Bible. And I remember in my Bible 101 class hearing very heated discussions, very heated, about whether or not women should be allowed to preach. And um, feminist was used at that time uh, as a very dirty word. And some of us might, that might resonate. Um, and sometimes we had certain professors who were called feminist professors, and that was supposed to be a really bad thing. This is coming from the students, uh, which is really interesting. Um, I was particularly fond of one of my professors named John Stanley, who was married to Susie, who was also a Bible professor. And John would often wear a shirt that said on it, on the back, real men marry pastors. That, Luke's feeling pretty good right now, isn't he? Um, but even now, I can feel uncomfortable with the word feminist. Oren last week was introducing, and he, he said, oh, Becca's, next week, Becca's going to speak from a feminist perspective. And I was like, kind of like, yes. <laughs> um, so what does feminism mean? And I have a sl OK, actually, sorry, skip ahead, sorry. <laughs> Um, feminism is the radical notion that women are people. That's all that feminism is. Women are people. And this is from Mary Shear, or sorry, Marie Shear, who was a sociologist in 1986. She coined this phrase. So that's all we're talking about. No, we don't have to be scared. Um, do we still need to talk about feminism in Australia? Yes. We do. So we in Australia still have very high rates of male violence against women. We have high rates of sexual harassment. Men are paid on average 23% more than women who are in their same job with the same qualifications. And women make up 47% of the workforce, but only 17% of leadership. And how much more would that be in most churches in Australia as well? And then if we look outside of Australia to other parts of the world, in terms of women's status, the gaps and then inequity are, is even larger. Um, was Jesus a feminist? Yeah. Um, if Jesus had gotten married, would he have married a female pastor? What do you think? <laughs> is that a weird question to ask? All right. Um, all right. So. I'm going to read through this passage, um, although Eloise did such a great job. Who heard Eloise and was like, you should be on, last week she read the passage and it was like, you should be running a podcast or something. <laughs> Do you want to read it again? All right. She, she's great. You're listening to Central Church. <clears throat> Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such... Oh gosh, I've lost my line. Sorry, guys. Such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. I feel very Christian reading such a long passage of scripture in one go. go. Thank you, Eloise. Um, so th- throughout his ministry, um, Jesus included women where Jewish men had largely excluded them. So 
women couldn't actually, so this is Jewish women couldn't worship at the synagogue. They could only watch. They were forbidden to enter the temple beyond the women's designated area. A woman was not to touch the scriptures because she could defile them. Some sources say that a man was not meant to talk much with a woman, even his own wife. Um, and talking with a woman in public was even more looked down on. But Jesus regularly defiled purity codes in general, um, but he defied the rules around how men were meant to interact with women. And we don't have time tonight to look at all the ways that Jesus was radical in the way that he interacted with women. Um, but there, there are so many stories in the Gospels involving women and girls. And the men who wrote the Gospels were so impacted by these events that they included them. Um, so imagine all the stories that didn't get included. Um, so Dorothy Day was a Catholic activist in the US. She was a part of the workers' movement in the mid-1900s. Um, and she was arrested numerous times for, because of civil disobedience. And she has this great quote. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this. There never has been another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed them or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condensation, who took their questions and arguments seriously who never mapped out their sphere for them, never argued them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole Gospels that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. So in this story, Jesus and his friends are walking north. They need to go from Judea to Galilee. Can you put up the map, please? Thank you. Um, actually, I want to say, so it's funny. I was kind of doing some research. Um, part, part of that was Googling. And um, I, I, I you know, was like feminine perspective on um, this story. And the first article that came up was written by the feminist professor at my university, Dr. Rita Finger. I was, it was cool. I was like, wow. Anyway, she had this handy map, which I thought was really helpful. Um, so often Jews would have, they would try to avoid Samaria. So as you can see on the map, well, actually you can't, it's very small. But um, so can you point to Judea? Yeah, okay. And then to get to Galilee, you have to go through Samaria. But what people would do is actually they would go east. Was that correct? <laughs> Was that right when I did that? East. Yes, thank you. Along, and they'd go along the Jordan River. And they would not just go straight through. So they would take the long way around. Um, but verse 4 actually literally says it was necessary to go through Samaria for Jesus. It was necessary. He was definitely not avoiding this part of town or these kinds of people. Um, 
And so according to the First Nations version of the New Testament, First Nations version of the New Testament, which I really love, an indigenous translation of the New Testament, um, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews because they were, quote, mixed bloods or mixed ethnically. Um, so there was essentially racial prejudice happening and also religious discrimination. Samaritans had their own holy place. They had their own ceremonies. Um, and they had their own, oh, they only read the first five books of the Torah, which we, as Christians, refer to as the Old Testament. Um, they only read the first five books. And the Jews despised them for this and thought they were impure, unclean, that you could be defiled by touching them, talking with them. Um, and so when I was 10 years old, and I would go to Sunday school. Now, Sunday school was before church. We actually did have to sit in the, the sermon. Um, so you guys are doing great back there. Um, but I, the Sunday school version of this is that the Samaritan woman was very sinful. Did anyone notice the word sin when we actually read the passage? No. Um, and she wasn't sinful just because she was a Samaritan but she had been married five times and she was living with her boyfriend. What a bimbo. <laughs> I actually <laughs> spent a lot of time trying to figure out what word to put there <laughs> that wasn't gonna be like just too triggering for some of us. Um, but I decided bimbo was safe, so. Um, and isn't, and you know, the idea was, isn't Jesus amazing that he spoke to her despite her sexual immorality, and he even sent her out despite her sin to be the first evangelist. So Karen Reader, Dr. Karen Reader, she wrote a book called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Hashtag Church 2, um, which will come up here. Um, and I actually drew quite a lot of information from her research. So it's, it's cool. This is great. So she actually talks about how the Samaritan woman is often hypersexualized in Christian interpretation of the story. Um, so Carol last week mentioned some of the church fathers. Well, Tertullian actually decided from this reading of the text that she was a prostitute. John Chrysostom said that she was guilty of wicked shame. John Calvin, um, who's a very formative voice in, for lots of Christians, um, he said that she was an adulterer who forced her husbands to divorce her. Um, throughout the centuries, men, mostly men have preached on this passage. And the Samaritan woman has been shamed as someone who is a serial divorcee, a sexually immoral woman. But like I said, in John 4, there's no mention of the word sin. Um, and Dr. Reeder goes on to say that girls at this time actually um, would have been given to a man in marriage by their families between the ages of 12 and 15. And those marriages were always in order to benefit the family. This was not her falling in love with somebody and deciding to get married. This was the family um, making decisions that would benefit them socially, politically, financially. And fathers actually retained the right over their daughter even when their daughter was married. So the father could actually divorce the daughter if there was somebody better for her to marry. Um, but the woman couldn't initiate that. And if you're, and, um, 
So this woman being married five times, maybe some of her husbands died. Um, maybe her father had her get divorced, or maybe her husband divorced her. Um, in Deuteronomy 24, it essentially says that a man can, if he decides he doesn't like his wife, he can divorce her. Um, and if somebody else marries her, he can't remarry her. Um, and if, if you, your husband did die or you were divorced, you were expected to get married again for the sake of your family and for the sake of your own survival. It's very unlikely that this woman was sinful because she, if she was, she would have had a really bad reputation and she, nobody would have wanted to marry her. And another thing that was interesting is there's actually no evidence. So another part of the story is the idea that this woman was at the, at the well in the daytime because she was shunned by the community. But there's actually no evidence that that's true. Women getting water, how many times do you go to the tap for water? Like, a lot. Women need water. They go to the well when they need to go. Um, it was not about, there was not just once a day that all the women went to the well. That'd be a bit silly. It'd be a big line. Um, and this wasn't the only place that women went to socialize. So even if you were there alone, it didn't mean you didn't have friends. Um, there's no reason to believe that this woman was ostracized by her community. Um, and this bit blew my mind a little. Dr. Karen Reeder said it was actually normal to live with a man that you were contracted to marry, like there was a, you know, you're engaged, but you hadn't been married yet. So that was actually normal before you got married. Um, and there was also informal marriages where um, a man and a woman couldn't legally marry each other for some reason, but they actually lived together and loved each other and cared for each other and were faithful to each other. Um, so one of the ideas that Dr. Reeder says is maybe this man she now lived with that was not her husband, was, maybe it was a Roman soldier. And this is how her family survived the occupation, um, is that she lived with this, you know, and was, you know, not married but living with this Roman soldier. All of these marriages that she had lost would have been for the good of her community and not actually about her. It's hard in our mindset right now to even conceive that. Um, so now does she sound like a bimbo? Or does she sound like an extremely strong, resilient woman who has survived so much pain? And not only was this woman a survivor, she was a theologian. She recognized Jesus as a prophet because he actually acknowledged her pain. He acknowledged her trauma. This, this was not like, oh, you know, Jesus knows everything and that like Santa Claus does. This is Jesus acknowledging what she has survived. Um, and Anna Gissing, who works with Interversity Press, has a quote. She says, we learn her story, this story of the woman at the well, is not primarily about her sex life or her marital status. This is about her discipleship. And that's how we know Jesus was a feminist. Jesus thought women were people. And he saw that this woman was a human. 
And I just love that how confident she is. I love that there's no imposter syndrome. Like if someone, if I realized somebody was like a prophet, I would get the heck out of there. Like, or even if somebody like is, you know, had written a book, I'm not the kind of person that actually would want to talk to them. I'd be like too nervous. Um, this woman has confidence. She meets Jesus in the daytime, in the full view of others. And theologically, she has a bone to pick with Jesus. She has some questions. Who are the people of God? That's her primary question to Jesus. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, not on this mountain and not in Jerusalem. So the Jews and Samaritans had different holy places. The Jews believed that the Samaritans weren't worshiping God because they worshiped in a different place. And she calls Jesus out on this. And he expands the definition of what true worship is, that it's not about where. It's about spirit. It's about truth. And her questions come from this particular vantage point that she has. The way she can see Jesus is not in spite of being a woman or being a Samaritan. It's because of being somebody who has been treated badly by those that have power. And these questions that she brings to Jesus have changed the world. In, in John chapter 3, so just a little bit before that, you know, Jesus says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And so that's a lovely idea. And then he meets this person who is complicated and messy and challenging him. And, he, and I wonder if her questions that come from her personhood even helped open Jesus' eyes a little bit more. Her challenge, because of being excluded by the Jews, actually causes Jesus to speak a radical truth of inclusion that really hadn't been revealed in that way yet. Another interesting note is that in the chapter before this, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who was a very wealthy Jewish man, theologically trained, meets Jesus when it's dark out and walks away from the conversation not seeing Jesus. And this woman, she can see Jesus. And I think it's, she sees Jesus more clearly because of who she is because she's been declared a second-class citizen on a few different levels and because she's been declared unclean. Sometimes people who are in the, quote, wrong group can clearly see what God is up to in the world. I love that when the disciples return, which we actually didn't read that part, that's why I was kind of sitting waiting if there's more. The disciples return and they're hungry and they're asking Jesus about food and see if he's eaten. And he says, I have food that you don't know about. And I find it interesting. It starts with Jesus asking for a drink, but he's given the food of having this deep, intense conversation with somebody who shares his passions for God and the world. I love that. I love that. Um, 
this story is also not just about women. If it was, this, could have, this conversation could have happened with a wealthy Jewish woman. And it would have still been radical. Um, but this story is intersectional. So do you want to put up that? This is from a dictionary, the Oxford Dictionary, I believe. Um, intersectionality. So that, sometimes we hear that phrase. Um, the interconnected nature of social categories, such as race and class and gender, in how they overlap and are interdependent within systems of discrimination and disadvantage. So this story is not just about women. This is about overlapping categories of disadvantage and discrimination. Um, this is a story about a woman, but she's also a person who's been told that she's impure. She's been historically marginalized and excluded and told that she and her group are on the outside. And so I'm going to wrap up with a, just a few questions for us to think about. Who will we allow to teach us about Jesus, about God, about how the world really is? Is it only white men who have gone to seminary, who are really the people that do theology, and everybody else does like a specialized kind of theology, like feminist theology. We really should start saying white men theology. <laughs> um, who will we allow to teach us about Jesus? How about a woman who is refugee background? How about a woman who is aboriginal? A woman who lives with mental illness. A woman who is part of the LGBTQ community. A woman who has lost a child. A woman who has been divorced and remarried a few times. A woman who has grown up in and continues to live in poverty. A woman who is neurodivergent or who lives with a disability, whether it's visible or not. And what about a girl in our youth group? What questions do these people have for Jesus that will open our eyes? And also, what questions do they have for the rest of us? What challenges will they bring to us and the way that we do things? Um, and I, wa I wanted to mention, uh, as I was... As I was writing this, somebody that really came to my mind is my friend Ella, who's here in the back. And Ella is somebody who um, has taught me so much about Jesus, about God, about what it means to be a person of faith, despite pain and persecution and loss. And, um, and that's partly because of her experiences of being somebody who has had to find safety in another country, and also somebody who's raising a child as a single mom. She teaches me so much about God. Um, and lastly, is there, is there a part of us, is there a part of you inside that has been silenced or ignored by others? but even maybe also by your own self. 
Are there questions that there's part of you wants to go toe-to-toe with Jesus on, but you're like, shh, shh, no, don't ask those questions? Is there a part of yourself that wants to meet Jesus in the light of day for the first time and see what he has to say to you? There's no part of ourself, our body, our mind, our heart that is unacceptable to Jesus. There is no part of you that is too young, too traumatized, too loud, too numb to be welcomed into the faithful love of Jesus that flows like living water. So I think maybe I'm going to ask Brian, would you come up and play the song you already played? Um, the ri- Spring Up, Rise? In- yes. Uh, thank you. Um, and I just want you to take a moment as, he's, as he plays this song and maybe just notice your body if you haven't yet tonight. Maybe notice yourself, your feet on the floor, and notice that you're held by a chair or a pew that also is the love of God. Um, and just want to give us a moment to see what, what might be landing for you, if anything. Um, just in these questions, is there, is there a, um, a, a part of you that you have silenced or ignored that has some questions for Jesus? Or is there a group of people um, that you want to commit to learning more from who have been silenced or ignored by the church? And so we'll just take a moment. And you might want to notice that those words that come to mind or a feeling in you that, that surfaces. Um, you might want to speak words of acceptance, words of commitment. And we might just listen to, to Brian just sing this song one time through as we just acknowledge that there's a spring of living water f- available to everyone and to every part of ourselves. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.